Hey y'all, it's your host Brandon here with a little heads up. Do the Work is a show that deals with heavy and at times traumatic moments around race and racism. So, if you don't have the emotional space to hear these discussions right now, that's okay. You can always come back to this episode whenever you are ready. We hope that you take care of you. Oh, and one more thing. Sometimes we use adult language in this podcast, so if you got kids nearby, you might want to grab your headphones. All right, now let's get started. Have you ever been talking to someone about race and heard them say, I don't see color. Everyone is the same to me. You might as well be purple. (laughs) I know that I've heard that. Now, it might sound nice, this idea that we're all the same no matter our race. And because we're all the same, we should all be treated equally, right? Well, here's the problem with that. The reality is that race does affect how we move through the world because it affects how the world treats us. And simply ignoring this fact won't override centuries of systemic racism, and it won't make up for unconscious bias. Those things will still be there, affecting people of color, whether we choose to see race or not. You're listening to Do The Work, a show that untangles the uncomfortable, offensive, and sometimes downright racist moments that happen in our personal relationships. I'm your host, Brandon Kyle Goodman. On today's show, we're bringing on Melissa and her mom, Paula, to talk about the problem with being, quote, colorblind. That's after the break. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you will instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. All right, y'all, let's get to know Paula and Melissa. Paula was born in Portugal. When she was nine, her family immigrated to New Rochelle, New York. At 16, she picked up a job working as a busgirl at an Italian restaurant. And that's where she met her future husband, Rocco. Ugh, I love the name Rocco. His family came to the U.S. from Italy. Paula and Rocco fell in love and they got married young. Then, 12 years later, Melissa came along, and they became a family of three. Melissa was a chubby little girl. She had rolls on her legs and rolls on her arms, and she had a lot of hair, pure, dark black hair. She was beautiful. It was just, a, I think, love at first sight. 
Melissa brought so much joy into their lives, and Paula treasured the moments they had together, just mother and daughter. When Daddy went to work, I used to just kind of lay around, and, and Melissa just loved the feeling of the Tempur-Pedic mattress. And she would snuggle up next to me, and we'd be watching Barney or uh, um, Blue's Clues. Eventually, they became a family of four when Melissa's younger brother came along. He's also named Rocco, by the way. Growing up, Melissa and her younger brother were taught to embrace both their Portuguese and Italian heritage. And since Melissa's dad was a chef at an Italian restaurant, when it came to food, meals in their home were Italian all the way. (laughs) Here, I'll let Melissa tell it. Every holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, we had these huge Italian feasts with the antipasto, with the traditional Italian tomato sauce that my nonna and nono, they would make themselves. Melissa loved expressing her Italian side. She worked at the Italian restaurant with her dad. She took Italian language classes. She performed Italian songs. It was just like Italian all day, every day for us. And that's just like what we were used to. We were told that this was the country that my dad came from and we needed to know our roots and we needed to be proud of that culture. And where you came from was really important. For Melissa, growing up in the mostly white rural town of Fishkill, New York, it was a good childhood spent surrounded by a loving family. So y'all are probably wondering, Why are Melissa and Paula on this show, right? Well, there was one thing about Melissa's picture-perfect family that seemed out of place. I think it started when I was in kindergarten, I believe. I got picked on by another little girl. She said I was Black and I wasn't able to play with her. And that was like the first time I really noticed that I was different than other kids. And I went home and I remember asking my mom, like, well, why is my skin darker? Why is she picking on me? And she told me, like, other people's opinion doesn't matter. And that's pretty much it. As Melissa grew up, these types of comments from other people happened more and more. Strangers would speak Spanish to her or ask her where she was from. They kept telling her that she looked different. I was just really confused, and I'd always tell them, like, my parents are Italian-Portuguese. Like, I'm Italian-Portuguese. I don't know what you're talking about. And I'd ask my parents, like, well, why do people keep doing this? Now, what Melissa's talking about here is something that I and a lot of people of color know very, very well. She was being othered. It's a term used to describe the experience of being seen or treated as someone who does not belong in the mainstream group. In this case, that group is white culture. Now, Paula had an explanation for why Melissa kept getting othered. Uh, You were born in Colombia, and that was my response to her. Mom and dad were in Colombia, you were born then, then we brought you here to the United States. They would tell us that they vacationed a lot, and my mom was pregnant at the time, and then she um, she went into labor early, and that's why they, they had us there. And I knew nothing about pregnancy, um, like, anything. So I was just like, ah, oh, sure, that makes sense, okay. Um, and then when I'd ask, like, later on, like, well, why'd you go back and have Rocco, my brother, um, and Columbia too? And I'm just like, okay, well, that's an odd coincidence. An odd coincidence, for sure. 
But Melissa trusted her mom and dad, so she believed Paula's story. She had no reason not to. That is, until one day, she stumbled upon something surprising. Melissa was 13, and she was stuck at home and totally bored. So she did what a lot of kids do. She went snooping through her parents' things. One day, I was just in the office, and I was just going through um, the different drawers, and I found his paperwork there. The paperwork Melissa found were adoption papers. They were for her brother. I was pretty shocked, but I was a kid, and I was scared, so I just didn't talk about it with anybody. For a moment, Melissa thought that might mean she was adopted, too. It would make sense. I mean, it would explain why people kept saying she looked so different. But she had seen her own birth certificate, and it had her parents' names on it. So I I couldn't help but believe them, you know, that there was proof that they were my parents. It was right there in black and white. Melissa didn't tell anyone that she had found her brother's adoption papers. In fact, She kept this a secret to herself for the next six years. When Melissa was 19, she and her college boyfriend, Charles, were hanging out at her parents' house during winter break. Now, it was right before Christmas, and it was snowing outside, so they couldn't go anywhere. And just like before, they were bored. So... With nothing better to do, they wandered down to the basement where Melissa had found those adoption papers years before. We went down, we looked at the filing cabinets, and I took out the papers. She handed them to Charles, and he started reading the papers out loud. They were recommendation letters from relatives and friends of Melissa's parents saying Paula and Rocco would do great with another kid because they were doing so well with their adopted daughter, Melissa. There it was. The truth. Four words that completely changed Melissa's life. I was completely shocked and angry, like instantly infuriated because my parents had lied to me for so long. Oof. I, I'm, I don't know if y'all are as devastated as I am, but okay. So Melissa was understandably angry and she was overwhelmed. She couldn't believe it, especially because of what her parents had taught her growing up. They had told me so often that where you come from matters, where your culture matters. Like, they're the ones that had ingrained that into my life. A thousand thoughts raced through her mind. There were so many pieces to myself that I didn't know. There were so many questions that I now had with no answers. But some things that had been confusing to her all these years finally started to make sense. The kids in school who said she looked darker, the strangers who spoke Spanish to her, the people who asked where she was from, the othering that happened again and again and again. So, Melissa decided to confront her mom right then and there. So I went up 
from the basement. She had just come home from a long day of work and her routine was like, get changed into comfy clothes and then, you know, go make something to eat. And I followed her upstairs and I remember asking her, just like, hey mom, like, how was work? Which was weird for me. Um, and so immediately she knew something was wrong. And so she looks at me and she's like, what's going on, Melissa? And I'm just like, well, mom, I, I know I'm adopted. She was very, very upset when she found out I wasn't ready and didn't want to tell her that she was adopted. I still refused to think that she was adopted because in my mind, I, I don't use that word. She's my daughter. And then she freaked out. Um, she absolutely lost it. She was screaming and crying, saying, you're my, you're my daughter, I'm your mom, this and that. And we got in this big fight and I told her if she didn't give me my paperwork, I was going to leave and she wouldn't see me again. Paula tried to explain why she'd lied to Melissa for all those years. It was to protect her. I didn't tell her because I didn't want anyone in the family or anyone to ever tell her that she did not belong. I felt very hurt that I hurt her. I didn't have any words to say except for I'm sorry for not telling you earlier in life. And if that was wrong, then I said, I'm sorry. I can't go back now, but that was my only reason. Melissa couldn't believe how long her mom kept the truth from her. I felt like I lost a mother because of the lies that she told. And I never once thought that like, oh, she's she adopted me, she's not my mom. No, I was just like, how could you lie to me? That was wrong and I can't talk to you right now. Melissa needed space. And so she stopped speaking to her mom for almost a year. But she loved her mom. So slowly she started talking to her again, and Paula started listening. But for Paula, unlearning white privilege has not come easy. It's been hard for Paula to see Melissa as Colombian. Yes, you're Colombian, because you were born there, but you were raised as a Portuguese and as an Italian. So therefore, to me, that's what you are. Yeah, I'm your daughter, but I am Latina, and you may not see me as Latina, but the rest of the world does, and people have been treating me like this for most of my life. After the break, we'll talk with Angela Tucker, a transracial adoptee advocate, about the problem with being, quote, colorblind. Then, we'll bring Melissa and Paula together to see if Paula will finally be able to start to embrace Melissa's Colombian heritage. It's something that is really important to Melissa, especially now that she's become a mom herself. I have two Colombian boys, and I feel like it's important for her to understand what they will go through. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, Melissa and Paula's story is quite the roller coaster, y'all. And I don't know much about transracial adoption, so I wanted to hear from an expert who can talk about transracial adoptee experiences. My producers called up Angela Tucker, a transracial adoptee advocate and a Black woman who was adopted by white parents as a child. 
Through storytelling, consulting, and mentoring, Angela works to center adoptees in transracial adoption issues. And in doing that, she brings her own unique story to the table. My parents are white, and they adopted seven other kids, all um, from foster care or internationally. And I grew up in racial homogeneity. The city that I grew up in at the time was 1% Black. Now, I wanted to know more about what's often referred to as colorblindness and how it affects transracial adoptees. But before we dive in with Angela, we need to address the term colorblindness. Colorblindness is actually an ableist term because it can be offensive to folks who are sight impaired. Color evasiveness is a more acceptable term. We started by asking Angela how color evasiveness affects transracial adoptive families. When adoptive parents uphold this parenting notion, they are typically parenting based out of this idea that love is enough. And that race doesn't matter, that racial differences don't exist and don't need to be pointed out because they're giving the kid everything they need. And so for the adoptee, this leaves us wondering who we really are with regards to our racial identity and does it actually matter because it seems like it does. So even though this confuses their children, Angela has theories about why white adoptive parents still decide to raise them with color evasiveness. Many parents are doing this thinking that it's the best way to parent their kid. I see you as just a beautiful person. I don't see your color. And thinking that's a really positive approach when in reality you're negating a huge piece of themselves and a huge piece that society will see and it is a convenient way to not address the deeply rooted issue that is systematic and institutionalized racism within adoption for a white adoptive parent they also need to come to terms with their role in perpetuating racist systems, which is, of course, really uncomfortable. And for adoptees, this can have a major effect on their sense of identity, especially for those like Melissa, who discover they're adopted later in life. Angela says that this can create a lot of conflicting emotions within transracial adoptees. They can feel like they're split into three different personas. The person their parents tell them they are, the person they are to the outside world, and the person they feel they are on the inside. And through her work, Angela's heard a lot of their stories. Some adoptees report that they forget that they're a person of color. So they've said things to me like, it's only once I go to the bathroom and look in the mirror that I remember I'm black or brown. But when I'm out and about, I'm with my parents who are white. Like, we can't see ourselves, so we only see our world outside of us. We see our white parents. If we're living in racial homogeneity, we see all of our white friends. And so it's not until we see ourselves in the mirror that we remember that we aren't white. That is actually a common feeling that isn't discussed because it is embarrassing. It also lends us to feel anger at our parents that they would allow for that to happen. 
Angela says white adoptive parents have to do the work to understand the types of experiences their child of color will go through. They need to connect to the communities and cultures where their children come from, too. There is a lot of work that adoptive parents should be doing before they adopt a child. And so some of those things are really understanding their motivation to adopt. Are they trying to adopt kind of what was used to be called a blank slate that they can just mold as they wish? Or are they aware that this child comes with history, background, even if they're adopted at one day old? And children who are transracial adoptees need to have friends who look like them. Angela says transracial adoptees need to spend time with their own communities, with other transracial adoptees, and with other people from their birth culture. And lastly, one of the biggest things Angela says adoptive parents should do for their children is tell them the truth. I have not met a woman who's hope in life was to place their child for adoption. And so adoptive parents, as tempting as it is to reframe the story in a positive, knowing our truth, no matter how hard or painful, is always better than a false truth, a half truth, or nothing at all. Because when we know our truth, at least then we can start to put the pieces together about why we ended up here and with these people. That's right, y'all. The truth will set us free. Now, if you want to hear more from Angela Tucker and her incredible story, you can check out her documentary on Netflix called Closure and her podcast, The Adoptee Next Door. All right, now that we've heard from Angela Tucker, I wanted to speak to Debbie Irving, our in-house educator. There is a lot to unpack in Melissa and Paula's story, like white saviorism, assimilation, and identity. Ooh, honey. And I wanted to talk to Debbie about them all. You know, I know people, um, white people who were adopted by white parents, and the parents didn't let the kids know that they were adopted, and they find out later in life, and that alone, before we even layer on any race or ethnicity, it's, it really speaks to how powerful identity is. Yeah. And when you find out you're not uh, who you thought you were or from where you thought you were, it really um, reorients everything about the way you view yourself in the world. In this case, it's a window into a phenomenon, a much larger phenomenon going on in the United States. And that is the phenomenon, you know, it's often referred to as a melting pot. Mm-hmm. And I think we would be better to call it a pressure cooker. Ooh. And, and, <laughs> and the pressure is to conform as much as you possibly can to the American ideal, which is a right. white patriarchal ideal. And, and it's even tighter than that. It's Anglo. Mm. It's Christian. It's able. It's hetero. Yes. And and so when we think about people coming from anywhere in the world, this is before we bring um, transracial adoption into it. There is great pressure in the United States, uh, no matter the color of your skin or your ethnicity, to conform to that American ideal. You know that all American yes. ideal. 
Yes. And if you can do it, there are big rewards, material rewards, psychological rewards. And so through history, uh, there's been um, a lot of jostling to see who could become white and who couldn't become white. Oof, yeah. You know, and it's not just about how you feel. It's what you have access to. For most of American history, you had to be legally white to gain citizenship. And so when I think about um, Melissa's mom and dad, Italians and Portuguese are good examples of what are called white ethnics. Mm -hmm. Those are people who at first experience um, a lot of ethnic hostility, trouble getting jobs. You know, they get all these negative stereotypes. And in a generation or two, they're able to assimilate into whiteness. Right. Well, it almost sounds like there's a bit of, and and tell me if I'm wrong, but a little bit of white saviorship happening here. I think I think you're absolutely right. And I don't think it needs to be conscious. Yeah. You know, as a as a recovering white savior myself, mm. <laughs> I can tell you, you do not need to know you're doing it to do it. Yes. And this is where Because you're really trying to make the child completely mine, right? Like so there's like, this is my child. And there's a quote from Sweet Honey in the Rock, and it's a song that they sing, um, your children are not your children, which really means that, like, we are all our own individuals. You can never fully make Melissa yours because she's our own person. Yes, this isn't unheard of um, because this has happened at the state level in the United States where large communities, and I'll use the example of the Indian boarding school movement in the 1800s, mm-hmm. where indigenous children were taken from everybody and everything they knew. They were transported thousands of miles to these Indian boarding schools. The first one was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And the goal was to anglicize and Christianize these children. Oof. The man, um, the white man who came up with this idea, Richard Pratt, he was a white savior. You know, his yeah. uh, his line was, kill the Indian to save the man. Oof. So he hoped that if you could give a rigorous um, scouring, get out all that Indianness, and make these kids Anglo and Christian, that they would be more fit for civilized society. And that is the the disease of white saviorship, is that white saviorship inherently believes that whiteness is human. Whiteness makes the man. And all the other cultures, if there's Indian, if there's Trinidadian, if there's uh, African, that that separates you from being human. And so we got to beat out your ethnicity and make you a quote-unquote man, which is disturbing and disgusting. But you know what? I think so many people are unconsciously um, acting out and doing all the time. It will, and guess what? It didn't work then, and it doesn't work now. These, these, these children came out of these schools, and they didn't belong back with their home people. Mm. And they didn't belong in white society. <sighs> and is there an echo of that in this story? Does Melissa now neither belong with her adoptive parents nor... With our Colombian ancestors. That's heartbreaking. But I do believe that she will be able to find her community. But that is heartbreaking to think about. That that is, oof, I'm not going to cry. But that is, I'm not going to cry. That is, to me, the work for Melissa at this point, right? It's like finding her home. 
essentially. And that's kind of what was taken from her. And she'll never get that back to the degree. But I do believe she'll be able to get pieces of that back. I do too. I'm not crying, I swear. Maybe just a little bit, honey. But if you want more of Debbie, you can pick up a copy of her book, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race. Coming up, we'll hear Melissa and Paula talk about how color evasiveness in their family hurt their relationship and, most importantly, how Paula can do better for her grandsons. That's next, after the break. Hey, y'all. Before we jump back into our episode, I want to invite you to be part of our show. If you want to be a guest on this podcast, email us your story at do the work at 3uncanny4.com with the numbers spelled out. So that's do the work at 3uncanny4.com and tell us your story. Or you can call us with your story. Drop me a line at 973-922-3345. That's 973-922-3345. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So we're about to bring Melissa and Paula together to talk about how Paula's color evasiveness has hurt their relationship and how they can move forward. But before we do that, let's do a quick recap of their story. Melissa was raised to believe that she was Italian and Portuguese like her white parents. But growing up, she kept being told that she looked different. Strangers would come up to her and speak Spanish. In her rural, mostly white hometown, she kept getting othered. And then when she was 19, she found out she'd been adopted and was actually Colombian not Italian and Portuguese, like her parents had led her to believe. That was seven years ago, and since then, Melissa says that her mom still sometimes has trouble seeing her as Latina. Melissa is now married to her half-Columbian college sweetheart, Charles, and they have two beautiful young sons together. Melissa is an author who writes a lot about her life as a transracial adoptee. She also has her own podcast called Adoptee Thoughts. A few weeks ago, my producers called up Melissa and Paula on video chat. They were both in Paula's house talking on separate computers in separate rooms. Melissa was in the kitchen trying to keep their adorable dog quiet, while Paula was in the dining room wearing Melissa's hot pink headphones. We started off by asking Melissa and Paula about how they've dealt with color evasiveness in their family. And well... It was a rocky start to the conversation, to say the least. I kind of tried to explain it to her and um, how my parents raised me, teaching us that our color doesn't matter. I tried to explain how that's problematic. And um, it, it, it's a kind of a difficult concept, and I don't think she quite gets it. To me, um, all people are equal. Um, in my eyes, anyway, uh, to me, uh, everyone is equal. Uh, just hearing her say that kind of already gets me frustrated. Um, it's kind of 
the argument where she says she doesn't see color and yet time and time again, like both of my parents have seen color and said things against other people of color. Um, like my problem with it is that growing up, like I tried to talk to be like, mom, why do you say like that Indian person or that black person, whatever it is. Um, and then you would tell me, oh, they're all the same. And there's like an inflection in the meaning there saying those people are like that, you know, that group of people. And that's the problem, like grouping a whole race together and saying like, oh, all these types of people, they they act a certain way or they're rude or, you know, they always like talk um, ghetto. And that's the problem. That's racist. That's prejudiced. And like it's like you still don't understand how opinions can be racist despite not like meaning to be just because you didn't intend it to be doesn't mean it isn't well i i understand what you're saying as well but you can't take everything on the offensive okay well melissa wasn't quite getting through to her mom. So to try to get Paula to see her side, Melissa told a story. She was a teenager working as a bus girl at her dad's Italian restaurant when a bunch of businessmen walked in and got a table. The one guy who was like the leader of the group, he starts talking to me in Spanish. And then like, Anytime he would speak in English, he like spoke really slowly and like made a comment to his friend. Oh, the help. They they always act like that or whatever. Watch like look at me speak in Spanish like I've been practicing. And that's when I was just like, what? <laughs> like what? Excuse me. And I was like, I, I speak English. I don't speak Spanish. Like my dad's the owner of the restaurant. That's when I really realized that this had been happening for a while. I would tell them, no, I, I'm Italian and Portuguese. Like immediately their attitudes would change, their demeanor would change and they would treat me with more respect. And that's when I really saw like, oh, like my parents tell me all the time that like, color doesn't matter, but that's when it really showed me that it does. People treat you differently based on who they think you're, you are on your race and ethnicity. Paula was listening carefully while Melissa told that story. And it made her think about the times when she might have treated other people of color the way those businessmen treated Melissa. It makes me very angry that my daughter was treated that way. What does it matter if she was Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, Latino, whatever? You don't treat a person that way at all. But unfortunately, in this world, there are people like that. And I probably might have been one of them back in the early days. You know, some of the things that I probably have said that I didn't mean to say, and it came out as me being um, either racist or colorblind. Um, but I'm learning. Uh, as time goes by, I'm realizing that there is a lot of cool people out there, and I have to learn to um, not be one of those. And one of the ways Paula is learning is by having conversations like these with her daughter. There's a whole wide of things out there that can teach adoptive parents today on how to raise their kids. Unfortunately, back then, I didn't have that. 
all I knew was she's my child and I'm going to raise her as a Portuguese Italian. And that's what I did. If I knew what I know today, I probably will go about it differently. Um, number one, I would definitely have told my children that they were adopted from the beginning um, and definitely would try um, to, uh, you know, to install some of their culture into our culture. And probably things would turn around and be a little different today. Um, we probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. <laughs> now, while Paula was talking, Melissa was smiling along with her mom. And she looked surprised at what Paula said. And although it's been challenging, Melissa said she has found ways to connect to her Colombian culture as an adult. Well, one of my favorite things is I listen to a lot of reggaeton, and another is um, the food. <laughs> I've recently learned how to like properly cut and cook platanos. I've been in a lot of Colombian adoptee groups on Facebook, and we, we talk a lot, so that's been nice, too. Hey, you teach your kids how to say some words in Spanish, too. <laughs> oh, I only know a little bit. I try. What's that song in Spanish uh, that, Carlito, that you taught Carlitos? The Baby Shark. Oh, yeah, we listen to that one in Spanish. Like, I'm trying, but it's a process. Spanish baby shark. Y'all, I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Melissa's two sons are four and three years old, and she's thought a lot about their connections to their own identities. My goal is for them to feel comfortable so people don't come up to them and say, like, oh, you're Latino? No, you're not really. Like, <laughs> um, Because my husband had to deal with that, too, because he's half Colombian, but he does not look at it at all. Like, he's pale and has red hair. So he dealt with, like, the opposite of what I had. And so I'm trying to, to kind of make sure that they don't question their identity as much as we had to. And so we're just kind of taking baby steps and trying to do it as a family. And Paula's been making an effort, too. I tried to incorporate a little Colombian food into our Thanksgiving. Uh, I made some platanos. We had some empanadas, a couple other things. I love my two grandchildren with all of my heart. And she can vouch for that. <laughs> I hope that they learn that they come from a very loving home. Um, they come from a family that's multicultural. We're Colombians, we're Portuguese, we are Italians, we are Blacks. We're a little bit of everything in our family. Melissa and Paula have come a long way. Because they love each other, they've committed to opening up and talking through their issues. And now they have a much stronger relationship. I learned to be more open with my daughter, um, not to be afraid to talk to her about these issues. When I first like found out I was adopted, I think it's like seven years now. Um, those, co these conversations like could not even occur without screaming matches, um, just no one understanding the other person. And now she does try, like she reads my articles that I write about race. Um, for her to say to me, just like, there are some problems with adoption. That's a big deal. Like her saying that really shocked me. I wasn't uh, aware of how much my work has been an impact. That means a lot to me. And that is something we can all take away from Melissa and Paula. Even through the toughest times, we just got to talk to each other and most of all, listen. And we have to keep showing up for each other and keep having these conversations until we reach an understanding. That's an important part of doing the work, y'all. 
Do the Work is a Three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, Brandon Kyle Goodman. Our in-house educator is Debbie Irving. Our senior editor is Amy Eason. Our senior producer is TJ Raphael. Our associate producers are Rahima Nasa and Sharina Ong. Catherine Shoemaker is our development producer, and Jenny Kim is our production manager. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. We had additional production help on this episode from Lena Richards. Special thanks to Adam Davidson and Nuna Sharafadine. The show was mixed by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. Ava Amabehi is our fact checker, and Elishaba Itoop created the theme. If you like the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. And hey, why not leave a rating and a comment while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Or better yet, tell somebody about us, honey. And if you want to have your own story featured on the show, email us at do the work at 3 uncannycom That's with the numbers spelled out. So do the work at 3 uncannycom Now, I hope y'all are taking care of yourselves as we deal with these heavy conversations. One self-care tip from me is to journal, honey. Get you a nice little book and start writing down how you're feeling. Oh, and one more thing. We're putting some handy resources on our website in case y'all want to do some reading up on the topics we talk about in the show. So you can find that at dotheworkpod.com. For 3 Uncanny 4, I'm Brandon Kyle Goodman. Until next time, you can find me on the gram at Brandon K. Good. Thanks for listening.